Welcome to the Movies on the Brain podcast. I am one of your hosts, Brian C. Wood. And with me this evening is my good friend and co-host. Chad Metz. Welcome to another weird, wild, and wacky week in the world of genre movie news. A week in which a Marvel movie was released, and I did not see it on a Thursday night. Um, Chad saw it on a Thursday night. I saw it Sunday night, tonight. Um, I just got back from my screen, so my thoughts will be fresh. Chad's had a little bit of time to marinate on his uh, his viewing experience. I was pleasantly surprised at a almost what ended up being a 200 seat crowd. In uh, that IMAX theater, pretty much that entire middle was full, um, which is something I have not seen low before the pandemic began. <laughs> I haven't seen a theater that full probably since Force Awakens, or not Force Awakens, um, uh, Rise of Skywalker. So um, it made the viewing experience more fun. Uh, for sure. And uh, so, Chad, tell me tell me about your experience on Thursday night. Tell me about your initial reaction to the film and uh, and we'll go from there. Well, my uh, my theater experience, uh, it was similar, I would say, to it's weird. It's kind of a, it was kind of between what I got for Black Widow and what I got for Suicide Squad. There were probably, you know, a little bit more people than there was. For Suicide Squad, it's probably closer to Black Widow in that respect, but uh, there were more people around the theater before and after my showing, like Black Widow and unlike Suicide Squad. Um, in the in the actual auditorium, there's probably about fifty people, um, which was a surprise to me. Uh, quick interlude. Now Brian Daniels is there. So there's your your wrestling minutes. Uh, but it was I was really looking. I, I made I made it a point to count uh, the seats before we went, just to get an idea of what uh, what we're going into. Um, because I know you know we talked about it, and we'll talk about it again. Uh, how Shang Chi does is very is going to affect everything not just disney but like everything so i didn't know what i didn't know what the numbers were going to be because it was like really between black widow and suicide squad and those are two very different end results uh that we got um now as far as the movie itself um i really enjoyed it i had fun with it uh however i am upset with myself because I had to go on a popcorn run and I timed the popcorn run to coincide with Abomination. So I did not see anything of Abomination in this goddamn movie and I'm upset about it. As long as you didn't time your popcorn run to Trevor Slattery uh, and his magic, magic creature that apparently not only he can see, um, <laughs> I think you were good. No, no, I, uh, while we're watching it, because my, my daughter's sitting next to me and uh, while watching it, you know, I realized that she hasn't really seen Iron Man 3. She, like her first real entry into the MCU is like Ant-Man. So she knows nothing, pretty much nothing about the Ten Rings, the Mandarin, Trevor, none of that. So when they're in the little dungeon part and they hear the noise, I'm like, oh, we're about to get Trevor. And she's like, 
She's like, why are you smiling? I'm like, because I know who it is. And he shows up. She's like, who's that? And I'm like, yeah, that's right. You have no idea. You have no context for any of that. For me, for me, it was that it was that uh, Red Skull moment where I turned to you and I was like, is that could that be? Did they do the impossible? And then, you know, five seconds later. And and, you know, the reaction we both had because we both like marked out because it was like an awesome thing. We knew Trevor was in the movie that, as you pointed out, they've been promoting it very heavily. He was on the red carpet and all the things. But um, it was still like a mark out moment for me because like as soon as, like you said, as soon as they see so her, that noise in the basement, you knew where they, what was coming and it was just like, and the crowd reaction too in my screen was awesome. Yeah, my, my only surprise with that was, was how involved with the movie he was. I thought we would get him, we'd see him, of course, he'd explain the situation and that would kind of be it. But he was like a crucial part to... He's so a translator, dude. Yeah. yeah, yeah, he was a translator. So and, that, I also, that. And, I also, and I also love that they got they got the, the guy to be like, the Americans made me into a, a tangy chicken. They, they named, they took my name and used it as a, as a terrorist organization. And they, they used the color orange. I love that they, that he tells that story and it's just like this is cult- cultural appropriation. <laughs> well, I mean, that's the whole. That was always the whole trick with the the Mandarin of um, like when they first cast Ben Kingsley as the Mandarin. That was one of the first things. Like, this is cultural appropriation, and then you find out what they're doing. It's like, oh, okay, I get it, and they're they're addressing it and making fun of it at the same time uh and not in a making fun of the culture he's appropriating making fun of the appropriator indeed it was quite funny it was one of the few times you get a sense of that character being at ease and just like you know being in his element being relaxed the rest of the time he's kind of intense (laughs) well intense or um uh my favorite part when when he was uh hiding at the end or uh, pretending to play dead and and the little faceless uh a footstool came up and he's like it's a performance chill out lay down yeah yes that also got a big laugh in my screening play dead yeah overall i enjoyed the whole damn thing indeed um so my impressions of this film are that, that this was worth the wait. Um, the color palette here is wonderful. The use of uh, the use of wind and the use of elements and dragons and all of the things that you associate with Eastern culture um, were done respectfully and done really well. And the movie, especially in the third act, has a very crouching tiger, hidden dragon feel to it, which I really appreciated in length. Um, it was well done. And it made sense. And that's what I liked about it the most. Uh, that and, of course, Aquafina. But we'll, we'll get to that in a, in a minute. But, you know, for Chad, for, for all of our talk about phase four and everybody being about what's coming, what's coming, what's coming, um, there's a definite theme that's presenting itself in uh, phase four that, that's interesting to me, and that is grief. Um, we talked about how in Black Widow, Marvel made a movie about human trafficking. <laughs> it's being seen by millions of people. Um, in this particular instance, 
both WandaVision and Ten Rings are being seen by millions of people, and they're both movies about dealing with grief. And they're in in their own way, they're both movies about being consumed by grief and what that can do to you. Um, Wanda literally grief bombs a town <laughs> out of her own sadness and anger and, and, and frustration over the events of Infinity War and Endgame. And, you know, real people in that town pay the price. They have the consequences. Uh, they bear the consequences of Wanda's decision. And she's faced with that at the end of, the, of WandaVision. And, you know, flies away, basically. Uh, in this movie, his grief over the loss of his wife and the fact that he wasn't there to protect his wife and his longing for his wife and having those happy memories and having those happy times back literally is driving him to destruction. Not only his destruction, but the destruction of the world because he... He is so consumed and lost in his grief that, like Wanda, Wanda believes she hears her children at the end, right? The multiverse opens up and yada yada, right? You see the little change in Wanda's expression when that happens. It's the same with this guy. He hearing and feeling her presence again drives him. And he doesn't care about anything other than getting to this end. And it doesn't matter what anybody else tells him. It doesn't matter what logical explanations you put in front of him for the situation. He's not going to accept them because he's in denial, because all he wants to do is live in this reality where he can save her, where he wasn't able to save her the first time. And that is a very powerful thematic element that has run through, you know, WandaVision is about, uh, is about grief. Ten Rings is about grief. Black Widow is about is is about human trafficking, and Captain Falcon and Winter Soldier is about forgiveness and living in legacy and living up to the legacies that are presented and and taking on the the burdens that those titles bring. Um, and Loki is simply about identity and who you are and what is your place in the universe and and can you change? Can you be different? Um, but the thematic element of grief is something that I'm finding very interesting running through Marvel Phase 4 properties. Interesting take. I mean, can't argue with what we've seen uh, thus far. Now it's just a matter of, uh, you know, what, what comes next. And is that something that continues to, to carry over? Uh, I mean, I, I don't know about the Eternals. They've been purposely vague on, on that kind of stuff. Um, Spider-Man doesn't seem to be about grief as much as regret. Phase four. It ended phase three with uh, Far From Home, which is a movie about him reckoning and dealing with the loss of Tony Stark. Is that phase four? Uh, that's the end of phase three, beginning of phase four. Okay. So that's right before WandaVision, which definitely explores grief. And you can't argue that, and, and there's no way you can talk about Far From Home without talking about grief. Because basically the ghost of Tony Stark leans over that movie the entire way through. I wasn't even thinking about Far From Home. When I said Spider-Man, I was thinking about No Way Home. Uh, because Spider-Man seems to be the code on these things, and I always forget if it's 
the end of the start. But I know I know No Way Home is smack dab in the middle of four. And I was just wondering about the direction they're going to take with that one in regards to this theme. Well, it's not like Peter Parker hasn't uh, hasn't lost a lover before. Uh, and, it, and and it's also not like Peter Parker hasn't he could be more it could be about the loss of identity, his secret identity in the way that affects not only him but those around him, right? That's been shown in the trailer, you know, with Aunt May and, and the others being interrogated by authorities and the way that it changes their life and that that grief and that law over that loss of his identity drives him to Doctor Strange to fix it. <laughs> which in turn perpetrates even more craziness. I can see that it now it's just a matter of how to how reconciled in the movie, which you know we just gotta wait to see. But um I can get with the, the themes of grief. It's I, my my only question now is how do they continue to think if if they're cognizant of the theme, because uh we give Marvel a lot of credit. Sometimes they they're very cognizant of things, sometimes they stumble into things uh, that doesn't make it not good or they don't make it not work for them. But if it's, if they're purposely going for this kind of theme, how do they keep it going through the rest of these things? Yeah, I just, it's interesting to me that it's even a place that they're going Um, because they like, that's, there's such rich thematic material there especially in the wake of half the population of the world coming back suddenly and going from grief and loss and having gone through the entire process over five years and then all of a sudden they're back and now they're showing up at your front doorstep and you've moved on and your life's changed and they just they think that it's been two seconds and the way that that impacts and changes the world as we saw in in in, in Falcon and Winter Soldier the impacts on overpopulation and all the things. Uh, I just, grief is a very, grief and trauma and how we deal with loss is a heavy thematic element that is littered throughout history and throughout literature. And I just, it's the fact that they're, it even seems like they're tackling it. It gives me hope for the rich thematic future of the cinematic universe. I'll just co-sign it. <laughs> I mean, it like me and you both know what it's like to go through that process. We've, we've, we've both lost people that we really truly deeply loved. And we, we both know how that, especially in the recent aftermath of it can be a day-to-day struggle. And we know how there can be subtle, simple reminders that, you know, trigger memories that flood you, flood your soul and just make you get all up in your feels. And grief is a process that is that exists and that is different for everybody. And what this film in particular, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, is to me about is about the two different ways, two of the different ways of dealing with, with grief. One is processing it, compartmentalizing it, and to a certain extent dealing with it as reality. And the other one is giving into it and yielding to it and staying frozen. Um, I love uh, in the Harry Potter world, I love the tale of the three brothers because it's about this exact thing. You can either accept, you can either battle death (laughs) and defy it. You can either loathe in it by, you know, 
standing at the mirror of Eris Ed and seeing what you want to see on the other side, but that veil being between the two of you and being driven mad by grief. Or you can accept death as an old friend and walk with him peacefully into your, when, you, when the time is right for you. Like, those are the three ways you can, you can either accept it, deny it, or fall into it. And in this particular show movie, we're talking about two different characters, two different ways of dealing with it, and the mirror image of father and son, and how, at the end, that turns. And how, you know, that affects the whole plot. And, and I just really, really enjoyed that. I want to co-sign that too. I can't, it's like I can't think of clever things to say. Yeah, no, it's 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 just that was something that just hit me uh, watching the watching the movie. It was just like because they go back to that death, they talk about it in code throughout the movie, and then at the end they show you what happened. And once they show you what happened, it becomes evidently clear how that impacted the father the father son relationship as a whole. Because he was gone, his son was there, his son didn't do anything, which his son was seven years old, barely trained, there was not much he was going to do anymore. And and she chose to give herself up, basically, and yield herself as a blood debt. And he saw his father murder people in return in that, (laughs) and that very much framed how he viewed his father for the rest of the rest of his life. And his father blamed himself for the rest of his life for his mother's death. Well, so I, I saw like through the story, I could see that with, uh, with, uh, when Wu grieving and not accepting it. And it leads you right down that path that he is blaming himself the whole time, uh, even though we don't know what happens. And then when we see what happens, we really understand that he's, well, we're still led to believe that he's blaming himself. What what got me was during their fight when he's he's you don't know if it's like him just lashing out or if he's really harbored this feeling the whole time and that's why he brought his son to watch him be a murderer and why he trained his son to be a murderer. But he during the fight he just he straight up blames Shang Chi like you were there you ain't do nothing mind you this is before he's a He's trained him as an assassin. Like you said, he's seven years old. But in that moment, it really seriously sounds like, yeah, I'm messed up because she's gone. But it's like, I blame you. I blame you because you didn't do anything. And your sister, she just looks like her so much. I can't even deal with her. Uh, so he's his grief is really messing him up. And it's manifesting in a bunch of different ways that we don't really get we really don't know exactly why how these things played out when he dies but uh the only thing we can go on is what he says and he does say he's grieving he does put some onus on himself but he also blames his son yeah and and the idea that i'm going to train you so that this never happens again i'm going to give you the power and the the abilities so that if I'm never, if something were to ever happen again, you'd be able to, to protect the home. Um, I it just it was really interesting to me because it also resonates with the three theme that our grief individually affects others, <laughs> and that was 
that was also a theme that that was resonating with me and interesting to me as well because he he's being presented with the facts no man she's not alive you know i'd know if my sister were alive you know she's not here like you're you're hearing the the things like don't listen to the voices the voices in your head are bad and he's like no you're lying to me yeah you're lying to me i know my wife's voice no you're lying to me and then he sees dragons coming out of the skin and he's like oh shit maybe you're right and uh, not even that he sees that we don't even know if the way it's shot like and the way they come out they're coming out above his head we don't know for sure that he saw them the little ones come out it's not until he sees the big the big monstrous one come out he's like oh my bad all before he's like nope let me try and fix this yeah like all before he has plausible deniability like i didn't see them little square things popping out but when the big one comes i was like damn y'all were right my bad all right, so Chad, let's get to our good or bad or not so good. Let's start with our good. Um, so my good is, hmm, I'll go with the, 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 the fighting, the martial arts style in this one. Because this is, you know, Marvel has a way of taking themes and other types of movies and, and doing their own thing with it. And this is uh, a kung fu fantasy film. Uh, I didn't really know how much fantasy we were getting until I saw the damn thing, but I knew it was going to be Kung Fu and it starts off with a bang on the bus fight. And um, this is the most, I would say this is the most intricate, like close combat fighting Marvel has done because it is a Kung Fu movie. And then they add in some of the, you know, once we get to more fantastical things, you get the uh, kind of wire food from um, Crouching, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. So the way they integrated that and like how it, you know, it builds on each other to get to, to the end with uh, the full out fantasy aspects. But it was a, it's another, it's, it's like another, um, how do I want to say it? Another notch in Marvel's belt. They've added something else they didn't, really have kung fu before they have it now they've done it they did it well and judging by how the film ends we'll be getting more of it because shang chi is not going anywhere we'll be seeing him again uh soon-ish don't know when but so they'll they'll progress it the next time we see it but seeing a full-on kung fu flick with full-on fighting and intricate fighting styles and everyone having something different to do with the fighting. I really enjoyed that. I agree. Um, and that's something that I really enjoy about phase four as well, is that it kind of seems to me at this point, like Marvel did a focus group after Endgame and was like, what are the things people say we suck at? <laughs> and People say, well, your action is very bland and, and very house style and it's all shot the same and it's all big superhero smashy smashy at the end in, in a CGI fight. And so it, I feel like between Black Widow, uh, Falcon and Wear Soldier and, um, and Shang-Chi, they've made a purposeful attempt to bring more physicality to the MCU 
and to make the fights feel rougher. Um, both Black Widow and Shang-Chi in particular, you feel like these blows actually hurt. Um, you feel the, the gut punch, literally, in, in both those films. And I think that that's a very deliberate thing because I think Marvel's trying to enhance that part of their repertoire. Yeah. Uh, and I think, yeah, I think they, they've made a list of the things they want to change and, well, how they want to expand things. And I think Shang-Chi is the first thing uh, and we'll get something completely different, uh, it looks like, with, with Eternal. So um, they are filling stuff out, even though people are still going to complain about, have their complaints because, you know, movies are structured in three acts and superhero movies the third act, I mean, in most movies, the third act result, like, resolves the conflict. Superhero movies, conflict's always a fight. There's only so much you're going to do. But Marvel is taking strides to make everything still fit their narrative, but different. And, and it's not just different from what they've done before. It's just different every time out now. It's one of the things that I really... Um... I really loved about uh, about the movie was just how much fun it was and how much that while it was an origin story and it's very exposition heavy, it never feels burdened by that. It always feels like it moves and like it's very brisk, which is and fun and, and the sense of fun that this cast brings is also is awesome, which brings me to my good, which would be the thing I was excited the most about by this film when it was announced at Comic Con 2019. Aquafina, man. We're going to get more Aquafina in the MCU and she's going to continue to make people laugh. And that pleases me greatly. Yeah. Um, I, I didn't hate Aquafina. I can't say that, you know, I mean, I can't say that I didn't love her either. She was, she was good. She was good for what she did. Uh, she was very heavy on the comic relief, which was fine for the most part. Um, there were some some moments that that didn't quite land for me, but nothing nothing major. I would overall rank her as a a a positive. Uh, so can't can't really knock that. And I love the way that she's telling the story at the end is very legitimate. Like I only learned to shoot a bow and arrow the day before, and I <laughs> and I killed this soul sucking dragon with my arrow. That she did that was very good. Uh, I did enjoy the last scene. Uh, I am confused as to the nature of her and Shang-Chi's relationship at the end of this movie uh, because it seems like, I mean, they explicitly say they're just friends. Uh, her grandmother. Well, yeah, the grandmother is very blunt about, so when are y'all getting married? Yeah, and I mean, they can go that route if they want, but I didn't think it was necessary. I kind of like them as just being friends. And it's not really clear. And I mean, it it looks heavily like they might be involved, but it's not explicitly said, said that they they are at the end. Uh, but they're holding hands, which could be, or they could it just could be a friendly thing. And she does go off with him. So either way, we're getting more of her. Which I'm, I'm completely fine with because she had some of the best lines in this movie for me and, and some of the best timing. And this was 
when she was brought out on stage at Comic Con, I marked out because like I've seen the farewell, uh, which is some amazing work by her. I've seen her comedy stuff on on the Comedy Central. I knew of her. I knew her brand of comedy. And I know the MCU, and I know their brand of comedy. And I figured it would it would be a really good match. Um, but man, she she was awesome and just made me made me laugh out loud many times. And it was just it was great. I did get. I am glad though, regardless of how that chemistry turns out, that there was chemistry between them. Because there have been so many different times where you know you tried to pair people up, see Hunger Games, where it doesn't necessarily work, and you just it falls flat. And, and what's the old wrestling term? You've got to sell. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Dolph Ziggler's Dolph Ziggler's one of the best sellers in the business, man. And then there are you know guys who are great straight up not going to sell that stunner at all. Like, <laughs> it, like there's there's good there's good sellers and there's not good sellers and these two sell the relationship and the chemistry well. Yeah. I mean, last time I remember people like doing that was um, Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga on the Star is Born. It's like, these two must be doing something behind the scenes because that chemistry is just, it's there, man. Oh, it's like the uh, the gif of Jessica Chastain and uh, Oscar Isaac that's been going around the last two days where... Um, if I was either one of their spouses, I'd be like, um, somebody got some answering to do somewhere. Cause this, this right here, nah, not nah, partner. Indeed. So Chad, what's your not so good? Oh, let's see. Not so good. Um, I'm, you know, this one is just for me personally. Um, my not so good is the fact that uh, they didn't really build in a proper popcorn run moment, and I, I, you know, I judged the 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 transition as being an opportune time to run and get popcorn, and in doing so, I missed the thing I was looking forward to, which was a comic accurate uh, abomination uh, beating up Wong. So I don't know what the hell happened there. I went to get the popcorn. I'm moseying my way back in there and I hear a snarl and I'm like, wait, that's abomination. And as soon as I cut the corner, it was done. It was over. I'm like, son of a bitch. And my daughter is not helpful because she's seen it, but she's like, uh, they didn't really say nothing. They were just up there. I'm like, thanks. So uh, she, uh, Wong, made, Wong made the abomination punch himself out. And then made it very clear that he and the Abomination had been working on their routine, uh, like good dance partners in professional wrestling do. And uh, so it's obvious that Wong and the and Abomination have had some interactions in the past and are working together in some way. So that's that's the bulk of that scene. Did they even say why those two were there? Uh, the, it was it's an international fight club, and Wong was just looking to make some money on the side. I guess is the gist of it. Like. Like it's a hustle. Like he just brings in him and him and uh, um, Abomination just do this thing where they travel around to different fight clubs and they they make it seem like they're gonna fight each other and it'd be a real deal. And then one goes over the other and makes a whole bunch of money for people. I have so many questions now. Like, how did Abomination get out? What made him? T- how did he find Wong? How did these two decide? You know what? We're not gonna try to kill each other. We're gonna go hustle people why at this point 
why does Wong think that he can chastise anybody for misappropriation of magic when he's rushing, running a hustle with a gamma freak for money on the side? He can't fuss at Dr. Strange and Spider-Man now. We know what he does on the weekend. I have so many questions. I need them all answered now. And I know I'm not going to get that anytime soon, but so many questions. And even more now, I need to go back and watch this movie just to see what the hell I missed there. Well, and the, also the thing is, like, why does he feel confident enough leaving Doctor Strange alone in the Sanctum Serum to go off and do these side hustles? Like, you know, clearly dude has some issues. You really want to leave him alone? Uh, you know, he, I mean. It literally, in the trailer for Far From Home, it literally looks like he's like, don't do that. Bye. You mean what, what Wong does in every movie he's in? I'm out. At, at some point. He's going to open the portal and be like, I'm out. Or he might, as he did in this one, he might summon you, but uh, he ain't staying there. Like, he's not going to step foot out that portal. He's going to just call you and go back. But every other time, oh, shit's about to get real. Out. But if you need a good karaoke partner. Man, look. uh, I know we're going to talk about those scenes, but, and I know there's some big things that happened in the first scene. But my takeaway from that first scene is these some bitches are so irresponsible and so much fun that I would just want to hang out with them to do all the wrong things when they shouldn't be. And I love that it plays, it still plays upon Wong from the first Doctor Strange with the whole Beyonce thing uh, um, in the middle of that movie. I love how that keeps building that little thing up. And that these three, um, have that kindred spirit of we could do this one thing or we can be totally irresponsible and as much as people we're going to get on Dr. Strange I'm sure later in Spider-Man for being completely reckless and irresponsible it seems to be a trait of all these wizards wizards doing side hustles with gamma freaks yeah that's uh, we got to stick that in there somewhere because I think that's a good line I like that one all right, uh, so my not so good uh, would be BMWs. Chad, BMWs are very reliable vehicles, are very nice vehicles for people who own them. Under no circumstances could I see a BMW vehicle traveling through the Amazon jungle with trees smashing all around it, surviving many crashes and still managing to run, and then driving through a waterfall and still managing to run. So my not so good for this particular film is the fact that it is not realistic that a BMW uh, with uh, graffiti writing on it would be able to surf right in through uh, through a waterfall and across uh, the desert plain or the jungle plains and into the uh, in into the magic land, especially when her father is smart enough to bring, bring land rovers, which would do the job. Yeah, didn't didn't they have a choice of what they took, and they decided, mm-hmm. yeah, this this little um, speed box car, we're gonna take this one. I mean, I I honestly didn't think about it at the time, but you are correct. Um, however, in their defense, they didn't know the trees were gonna be beating on them like that. Their father did, so he was prepared. As they their father is like, it's a maze in the jungle. What did you think was going to happen? It's a magic maze meant to protect the land from being intruded upon. 
What did you think was going to happen? Of course, there was going to be magic in that forest. It was probably <laughs> called the magic forest. And if it's called the magic forest, you should probably bring appropriate equipment. I mean, you can hear that. Like, we tell people all the time, like, you know, this is coming. You should be prepared for this. And they're like, okay. And then it happens. It's like, I didn't think this was going to happen like that. But I told you. But it's something about being in it yourself that changes it to, oh, now I get it. Sometimes people have to see it to actually get it. I mean, I didn't take them seriously when they told me, don't let the moose lick your car. You know, I thought that 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 was just a joke of some kind. And then I let the moose lick my car and I figured out why they don't let you. They tell you, don't let the moose lick your car because it can potentially tip your car over and cause damage to your car that causes it to be tilted. So, yes, there are, there are some times where you where even warning signs don't preclude you from doing stupid things. Yeah, that's all it is. That's all it is. Don't don't let the moose lick your, your car and don't feed the bears, Jack. Um, so what is your bad for this film? Um, uh, because there doesn't seem to be a ton of it, even with the exposition dumps and stuff, uh, the mysticism and all that kind of works. I know you're not the biggest fantasy guy in the world, but, um, but yeah, what was your, your bad for this film? Um, it kind of, it goes into that mysticism part. Uh, I mean, they did like slowly build to it, but, uh, and I don't think this is the worst thing in the world, but it does go, you, you go from hand-to-hand martial arts, which is close combat. You can do intimate things with it to a big dragon fight at the end. Again, it's not the worst thing in the world, but uh, it does feed into the whole narrative of Marvel, Marvel goes you know, CG happy at the end of their movies. Uh, because going into it, I I knew there was a dragon in it because I did see that that uh, that image of Shang Chi coming face to face with uh, with the dragon. But I didn't think the dragon was going to get involved like like he did. I didn't think we we're going to have like a a demon dragon come about. Um, so going into that, it's really more about the the whole Marvel narrative that I have to keep hearing and defending that annoys me more than how it works in the story. So it does work in the story. It's not my favorite part of the story. I do like it when the characters themselves are interacting and less of the dragon or dragon fight. But that whole Marvel third act um, narrative that I hate rears its head in this but as you said, that's just inherent in the story structure. Conflict mm-hmm. is almost always physical in, in legendary superhero narratives. So eventually it's going to, conflict is going to resolve itself in a fight. And it just so happens that in most of these big mystic fights, there's going to be big giant effects shots because, you know, that's the nature of how those things can be rendered on screen. You know, mm-hmm. uh, even, you know, Godzilla is no longer a guy in a suit. You know, that just things change over the time. And eventually, in order to do some of this big, fantastical stuff, you can't do all of it with miniatures and practical effects. You have to hire 15 effects houses to to slave over every frame and do it. So, I mean, I, I get you there. Mine, 
my bad for this movie would be simply that I, I, I know that they say that she didn't have her powers and she gave her powers up to be with the, the father, but the idea that we don't get to see her be a badass woman and just kick five or six of these guys' asses before she gets killed. We don't even really see her get killed. We just see the body and her and her son crying over it. We don't we don't see we see a lot of dead bodies actually, but we but we don't know how they got there except for her. So um, my bad would be the fact they don't really show us her. They build her up as this legendary mysticist, and then all of a sudden she's just dead. And it's like, um, what happened here? And they imply some of it with like the fact that she thought it was five of them and then it turned into 15. But um, man, like uh, I really wish we would have seen her actually do some stuff to, to warrant her being this, this goddess that's held up on a pedestal for the entire movie. They, they went out of their way to make sure that you understood that her power is tied to this land. And I think in doing that, part of the reason they did that was by giving up that power, it showed, it really showed what she saw in, um, in, uh, in Shanti's dad, who I'm, I know his name and I'm just blanking on right now. Uh, Wenwu showed just what she saw in him and how what she saw in him was completely different than what he had been prior. Uh, so I, I get that as that story point, but uh, it does, it kind of sucks that she had to lose her power like that. It just sucks that we don't get to see her defenders, her family. Yeah, We get to see him defend his family, uh, but we don't get to see her defend her family. And she's held up for her sacrifice because that's essentially what she does is she, she sacrifices herself for them. But the other part of it too is there's a bunch of bodies at the end. It's not just her. It's not like she's the only one lying on the ground. There are a bunch of them on the ground. Oh yeah, she and she she put up a fight. So why do we not see it? Is the is the frustration for me? I can well. I think it works better because you see, you kind of see him watching it and his shock and horror watching it, and then you see the aftermath and understand that in that moment you understand oh, she is a badass, even without those powers, because we don't know how many dudes came out there, but it was, they were a, a, a litter of these dudes just laid out. Uh, so she took out a bunch of them. Uh, the numbers were too much, but it, it had to be a lot, because she did some work. All right, Chad, so let's talk at the, about the post credit scenes. Uh, the first one's probably one of the longer post credit scenes in our history, but it's a lot of fun. And it includes both uh, Mark Ruffalo and Brie Larson and Benedict Wong and our two fem- our male and female lead from this movie. So let's talk about the fact that the Ten Rings are calling. Yeah, so, well, the first thing I'll point out about this is, um, you know, I just went over how, like, what my daughter knows of the MCU. And she's seen most of these movies. Um, but she's normally not the one to like know, like keep threads going from one movie to the other all the way through. But as soon as she saw Bruce Banner, she's like, why is his arm still in the sling? Uh, so 
she remembered it from uh from Endgame, and the I know watching Endgame and a lot of other people watching Endgame was it's his arm permanently like that, like did the snap permanently ruin his arm? And it looks like we kind of got our answer. It looks like Hulk is permanently, uh, I guess, injured from from using the gauntlet and his arm is permanently in that sling. Uh, now there are other questions about why is he Bruce and not the Hulk that we'll probably have to wait until next year for She-Hulk to get. But that was like the first thread thing that she pointed out. Uh, as for the whole scene itself, it was really it was long. I did enjoy it. I, I said how much I enjoyed the very end of it. But um, they are setting up something with the rings by the fact that they're calling calling out now, and it and it's it's funny that it's only after Shang Chi used them that they're calling out, and their fathers had like his when Wu's had them for thousands of years, nothing. Now Shang Chi used them. They're calling out. It's enough to get um, the the wizards, um, the Avengers, and the Hulk, and you know, cosmic stuff represented through Captain Marvel, all here to respond to it. So, uh, I don't even know if they truly know where this is going next, but they've put the rings in a place where now Shang Chi is like. He is directly on Avengers territory path. And I think at the end of the day, that's kind of where they want to put him. They want to include, like, find a way to in- integrate him into the world when they need to. And they did it through the rings. Now, what do they, what does that all mean? We'll probably won't find out until the next Shang-Chi movie. But if there's something big before then, he'll probably show up. So a couple of things here. One, um, I was happy to see both uh, Mark Ruffalo and uh, Brie Larson show back up. I was happy about the fact that they were called, the rings were calling out because it makes puts the rings in a Infinity Stones position where they're like key and important. I also like the fact they tie it back to the original where when his mother is telling Chen-Chi the story in the beginning, the narration, She's very specific about there's not a, a clear definite to find here's how the rings were found. She says some people think it this, some people think that. But one of the things that she brings up is the possibility that they were found inside of the, the wreckage of a meteor that it hit the earth, which would lend itself to the idea that they are actually cosmic in nature. And you are bringing in, in the next film, celestials who are beings that are eternal and big and massively powerful. Um, You know, and so I assume that you could be going in that direction of, you know, these things were used. uh, They were used by an individual for good. They don't want to be used for good because they are here to do evil. And um, now they're in the hands of a good guy and they're calling out for help from their creator uh, because they need to be used for their proper purpose. And I think that you can go in any kind of direction with that. They could be calling the Silver Surfer. They could be calling to Galactus. They could be calling to a Celestial. They could be calling to a Deviant. 
We have no idea, but it's out there and it's a big enough, big enough reveal that it takes, you know, puts them on as Wong says, the upward trajectory for their lives to change because they're all of a sudden on the same playing field as the Avengers. And then they all go partying and drinking and singing Eagle songs. That was good. I, I loved that end so much. And of course I played it on the way home and my daughter rolled her eyes at me and that's like peak dad move at this point. Uh, I did not care. I sang the song. She was annoyed. That made it even better. Let's talk about that second uh, post-credit singer because the film does not end with your traditional Shang-Chi will return. The film ends with the Ten Rings will return. And they will return as a prominent, a female-dominated uh, movement. Your thoughts, sir, on uh, her making her way in the world from running an underground fight club at 16 to running the Ten Rings and using it as a platform to empower women. Like Shang-Chi's sisters, uh, I think it's Jailing. I might be saying that wrong, so I'm not going to say it again. Uh, her character arc in this movie is she is she is justified in her feelings because he did her bad he knew what um what their dad was and he just left her there and even tried to do anything for 10 years 10 years so she became jaded and she built her own empire and she even says in the movie he won't give me his so i'll make my own well now uh, Shang-Chi being the, the gullible, happy-go-lucky person he's turned himself into, he truly believes that she's going to shut it down. When in actuality, she wanted the empire, she got one. She inherited one because her dad is gone. And I, I like how they're going to, when they look to establish in that where he had the tame rings and he looked, you know, there's no other way to say he kind of looked down on women because he made it he made it a point not to include her or any other women in the ten rings and she is reshaping the ten rings uh i mean she has her lieutenants uh the the guy that ran her fight club and uh knife hand guy uh they are they are men but she's re remaking that organization as a female i mean as a female terrorist organization the the actual coast inner circle ten rings that are connected to her, and I think that will be very interesting going forward. And like you said, they ended with the you know with the ten ring ten ring show return. And I, I got to admit, when I saw that, I smiled. I'm like, it's not quite Thanos is going to return, which was just a dick move in the end of Infinity War, but it does establish that. She's coming back with this organization, and we haven't really seen the organization do much since Iron Man, really two, because three was AIM and Killian masquerading as Ten Rings. But now I think the Ten Rings are going to be a player going forward. So I wouldn't be surprised to see them pop up in other things as this female terrorist fighting force. I agree. And the fact that he does trust his sister enough to go and shut down. Oh, wait. And uh, it plays into what she said and what she had wanted that she, you know, that sometimes, that especially in that culture, women, you know, it's, it's the, the, the lead son 
is the favored one in that. That's the one that's Gary can carry on the name and legacy. I keep going and thinking back to something that uh, the late Kobe Bryant said. He said, you know, who says that uh, that I have to have a son that that you know, carries on my name and my legacy? My little girl is more incapable of, of doing that for me. And he, she was on her way to doing that before they both passed away. But like, you know, the idea is that she was more than capable and watched her father and watched her brother and watched every single thing that she did. They, they did and taught herself to do it better. And it'll be interesting to see how she applies that and those lessons that she's learned to running the organization. I'm really, I'm really excited to see where she goes after this. Cause they've, um, they really, made her very interesting and very formidable uh, just just in the beginning uh, formidable enough that you know the mouth breathing incels on the internet uh, were very upset that she was so dominant for lack of a better word some saying you know should have been called Shang-Chi's sister in the Legend of the Ten Rings because she was because uh, it was all about her which I'm like what movie did you watch? Yeah, she's prominent, but it's not her story, but she is very, very prominent. Uh, I did almost wish that she did have some recognition in the in the title because there's a point in the story where she is clearly the number two. Very, She's very the very close number two. Uh, but so I knew she was a special character and they have plans for her but going this way let's we get to see how this affects everything because shang chi still got to deal with his his feelings over leaving her and i'm pretty sure he thought he was good coming out of this but uh they're gonna come to blows again and i don't know how he's gonna handle it indeed that's a pretty good sequel setup so before we uh, depart, we'll talk about the box office. But before we do that, uh, I didn't I got one to get to see whether or not you recognize the blip uh, Easter egg that Feige's been talking about, because I think I, I had seen it. No, I didn't know there was one that he was talking about. Um, they When Chen Shi is entering his apartment, there is mm-hmm. a little sticker on the side of the wall that says... Um, House, I think it's either says housing for the returned or how to re, how to live your life after returning from the blip, kind of like a like one of the government uh, agency posters you saw in in Falconware Soldier. But it's there; it's on the side of the wall, so it's an indication that maybe he was snapped away and returned. Um, so Feige said that that was one of the cooler, more interesting ways to address that kind of thing, and he thinks that or hopes that they'll go through that. And, and make that a prominent feature going forward is a nice little Easter egg. Yeah, I think you kind of got to. Um, I think though, I don't think they can do it for everybody because in in actuality, with uh, the actors that you have, most of them probably couldn't have gotten, shouldn't have gotten snapped just because of, you know, the whole age thing and how they look and whatnot. So. You can do it with with newer characters, like characters you introduced. They can they could have stayed around because who knows what age they were when the snap happened. 
But once we've already seen, I think we'll see a trend if they want to point it out that most of them got snapped away. But it is it is cool that they address it because it is something I think about from now on. It's like, is this character somebody they got snapped away? Uh, because we don't, with this one, we've never seen them before. So were they snapped away and we're meeting them after they put their lives back together from being gone five years or whatnot. But the downside of that is now you're dealing with, you can't really mention time, which they did, because they mentioned how long it's been that he had been away. And nobody- 1996 is shown right away. Well, yeah, so he's born in 96, well, 96, 97. and they say when we finally meet him in the present that he had been gone for 10 years. Uh, and he was he left when he was 20, he was left when he was 14. So he should be like 24, 25 right now. So 90, 96, and it's supposed to be in 2023. Mm-hmm. Um I would think that he got snapped. But then why say 10 years? Yeah. It is it's a housekeeping thing and it's only gonna make nerds stay up at night. Yeah. Um, but uh what what do we make of the box office and the reception? 70 million domestic, correct? 10 million uh, less than uh 10 million less than than Black Widows, uh, but 10 million more than or 20 million more than Fast Nine. Let me see if I can look it up. I think it would because it when I first started seeing it this morning, it was like low 60s and it jumped up to over 70 and we still are on a four-day weekend. So uh, it'll be it'll be something. So it is 71 million. It is the second highest opener of the summer following Black Widow, which opened at 80. Now, the thing with it is it it also broke all the records for three days Labor Day Quinn. So and th- these are pre print pre pandemic records. So it's I think it's going to be an interesting look for Disney because I think no pandemic uh, this movie probably makes a hundred and twenty ish more or less opening weekend. Uh, I don't know if it hit, I don't know if it's gonna I don't know if it hit a billion dollars, but it's one of those it's one of their higher earners if it's no pandemic. So seeing these numbers and seeing that it did less than Black Widow, it's like eh, and Black Widow had premier access and it still did more than that. It's like eh, but it broke all the pre pandemic records. So even without the pandemic, it's it set these records and that has to say something. What I really think is because there is no premier access, it's what does it look like next weekend? If that drop is like closer to what we've traditionally seen for, uh, for these movies, which is like 30, 40% drop. If it does that, then I think you consider it a success. It's not what you would have made before, but in the pandemic, this is like the closest thing to regular movie box office operations that we've seen. Uh, so I think it's all going to depend on 
the next two weekends to really get a gauge of what Disney thinks. But just on its own, yes, it's not what you would have thought it would have done pre-pandemic. But we're in a pandemic, and it broke all these records. And it's the highest, it's the second highest opening weekend we've gotten. It even beat Fast 9, which is a in pandemic times is a monster worldwide. So I don't I don't see how they don't end up seeing this as a win. And then the question is, so what are you going to do with Eternals? Are you going to keep it uh, theater only? Or are you going to premiere access it as well? I think of the next two, we can show that people are going to go and see it the following weekends. And word of mouth is awesome. Yeah, then they'll leave that the same. Because hopefully in November, we're past this peak and things are starting to go back down. And people might feel better about going out to the theaters. Pleasantly surprised at my crowd tonight. One of the largest, it was the largest crowd I've seen a movie with since the pandemic began. Um, pleased with these box office numbers. I know there was some out of context conversation about numbers don't lie in pandemic or no pandemic. This is, you know, in the lower end of Marvel debuts. But as our good friend Eric, Goldman, our good friend Eric Goldman pointed out uh, recently, you know, all those those first movies except for Incredible Hulk got sequels. <laughs> so Marvel and Marvel's very clearly after tonight uh, or after this movie placed Shang-Chi in a already on Avengers, you know, status. Um, even marketing the film is to come see the latest Avenger. So, um, or the newest Avenger. So they're, they're clearly marketing and putting on that pathway. Um, so I, I don't think the numbers are really all day at the end of the game day going to mean that much about where he stands in the overall plans for the MCU. I just think it'll be more of a, of a production thing or a financial profit loss statement at the end of the year thing than it is going to be a, a direct impact on a judgment about this character's favorability or likability or impact culturally or any of that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, this is a solid debut. And, you know, Labor Day weekend, even in non-pandemic times, is a slow weekend because people are traveling, college football starting off, all kind of getting those last minute summer vacations in before school starts again in earnest. So there's a lot of, of reasons why the, the lower end of expectations for Labor Day weekend anyway um, but they did clear that bar, and they cleared it during the pandemic. So more power to them. The Marvel brand holds true. Yeah, uh, I can't remember where it's at, but someone put up all the numbers, and it's like it's very clear that uh, the best, the studios that that the studio that's fared the best during the pandemic has been Marvel, because you got Black Widow, you got Jungle Cruise, you got this now Disney. Uh, um disney yeah disney and uh and free guy which falls under them now too they they've all fared the best uh followed by like fast nine and a quiet place so if you i mean what if i'm theater owners looking at all that data what i want is for disney to continue to put their things out and not to do premiere access. But I'm but if they want to do premiere access, I'm not as upset because it seems that people still will come out to my theater to watch their product, even if there's premiere access. 
but I would rather than not be because I think they'll come back again as opposed to just watching it at home. Indeed. So let me end this podcast by simply informing Hollywood of something. Under no circumstances should you ever give Roland Emmerich money to make a movie ever again. The Green Knight, which is a very successful A24 film of great critical acclaim and valor, cost $15 million to make. And under normal non-pandemic times, would have made that much money back and more for its studio A24 and its production company. Roland Emmerich's new movie in which the moon crashes into the earth for no real apparent reason, physics-wise or otherwise, is coming out budgeted somewhere in the 80 to $90 million range. A studio looked at his most recent previous works, which include Independence Day Resurgence and 2012 and Day After Tomorrow, and said, you know what we should do? We should give this guy 80 to $90 million or the equivalent of like seven or eight Green Knights and let him make a movie for us about a disaster. They didn't stop to think about what else could be funded with a with a, with a 80, 80 to 90 million or what other small you know up and coming filmmakers could have used that financing to do great things that would have moved people and done things like Lady Bird or Marriage Story or you know things like that that would have uh, you know brought people into uh, Beast of No Nation things that like would woo people and surprise people no let's just give this guy who's been around for 25 years making a living off the one mega movie that he made 30 years ago uh some more money to make another crappy b movie about a destruction a destructive event toward the earth because that seems like the smartest and safest play oh yeah his last movie was a remake of midway uh and it bombed too literally and physically so let's just give that dude more money so this is your this is me letting everyone in Hollywood know if Roland Emmerich comes to you with a pitch, turn him away and say, no, thank you, good sir. We're going to go over here and finance more independent films. Thank you. Um, so I I haven't seen a trailer for this movie. Uh, it is it, I love our good friends at, IG, at IGN who made it the exclusive, and that's great for them. The it just looks horrible. It look it it looks uh it looks you know uh geostorm horrible. Well, I heard the premise of it, and I don't understand how this is a movie because, from my understanding, the premise is that the moon, that moon up there, um, is falling towards Earth, and I like. Just a little bit of science I know, you know, who who am I? I don't I don't have a science degree or anything, but the little bit of science I know, I know one, if the moon starts moving closer to us, we're we're done. We're automatically done. I mean, you know, tides and all that stuff, the moon does, gravity, all that, that, that that's a thing. But if we get past that, what are you gonna do to stop it? Is Superman coming to push the moon back in orbit? If there's no way for you to stop it. You can't really Armageddon it. It is the freaking moon. So if the moon decides it's going to run into Earth, we're done. It's over. Game over. The movie should be like, sir, the moon is falling towards Earth. Cut the credits. That's it. 
It's over. There's nothing you're going to do. So I don't understand how we have a whole movie called Moonfall. And it's a thing that's going to actually have a resolution where the moon does not fall, stops falling. It's caused to stop falling by humans. None of this makes sense to me. So that's just, but that's just what I know of the movie and my two minutes hearing about it. And someone heard that pitch from that man and said, here's your check. And that right there, not Marvel, not comic book movies, that right there is the problem with Hollywood. That that man walked into a studio, gave that exact pitch and was given a check. Hmm. When there are, when Martin Scorsese has to go to Apple Plus to do an adaptation of Killers of the Flower Moon because no studio will finance him. Paramount won't produce his movies and pay him what he wants, pay for what he wants anymore because they can't, they can't make the productivity off of it. When, when people like Noah Baumbach and, and people like, uh, uh, people like Noah Baumbach and, and, uh, his, his wife, Greta, uh, uh, Greta Wilson and, uh, you know, all these different people, like, great independent even Sofia Coppola if Sofia Coppola wanted to go make a movie right now like her dad sold the winery to finance his last movie that he's ever going to do and like if she wanted to go get him he wanted to go get financing he has to sell his winery to get the money he needs to go make it like and yet Roland Emmerich can stroll up in his Lamborghini to some studio executive's office and just collect a check for 80 million dollars and go make a movie that will make like 10 and they know it's going to make 10, and they still cut him the check in him. Yeah, that, that's the thing. Like, if you want to make this dumb movie, fine. You can make dumb movies. Dumb movies are made every day. But to give him that amount of money, particularly, I mean, I don't know when this movie was shot. There's a chance it was shot before the pandemic. But let's say it was shot during the pandemic. You gave him $90 million while theaters were at their lowest point, thinking that he's going to turn a profit. I mean, as far as I know, studio execs are still in the business of making money. And that sounds like a losing proposition to me. If it was like 30, I'm like, okay. Even bad movies can make 30 million over the life cycle of their entire movie. But almost 100? Come on, man. And yet, someone heard that pitch and was like, "Here's check." So if you next time I hear somebody yell and complain about how movie movies and cinema are being ruined by Marvel, I will just simply point them in the direction of the studio, the studio executives that continue to give Roland Emmerich money, and I will say, "There, sir, is your actual problem with 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 the theatrical distribution system." Because it's not uh, like they gave him this money to make a VOD movie. They gave him this money to make a in-theater movie. Yeah, that is beyond ridiculous. All right, so that'll about do it for this week's podcast. If you want to keep up with this podcast, you can follow me on Twitter when I'm not lighting down the fans on fire, at BCW Tiger Fan. And I'm at the Mets Theory. Thank you very much, and have a pleasant evening. What did you say? So I might have just 
simply stated that at some point the empire will fall the way oh, it fell out. The comments you gave to Ryan Clark? Yep. <laughs> oh. I think I saw it right after you did it, and I didn't think anything else of it. Uh, the Bama fans are upset? Um, apparently, I know nothing about that Bama football because Gene Stalin sucked. Okay, sure, whatever. Uh, I seriously left my phone, went to the movies, got out to text you, and set everything up, and I had over 300 notifications. Jesus Christ, man. Those people are, are, some, are something else, man. I mean, I didn't think that, like, you know, I didn't know that trailer parts had Wi-Fi. So, I mean, I'm just <laughs> glad to know that, that so many of them have it. <sighs> I mean, look, I don't, I don't understand why, if you're that fan base, they get so up in arms the minute anybody says something against them. You've won six freaking national titles with the dude. Like, you're it. There's nothing for you to be unhappy about. If you're unhappy, you're just miserable human being. Well, I mean, as a it, it, Ryan's Clark's, Ryan Clark's suite was originally basically just, uh, you know, that it must be nice to be a fan who doesn't have to, have to worry when his team rolls out there on Saturday because <laughs> going to put up 28 points in the first half and it's just not going to be a contest the rest of the way yeah, um, you gotta worry right and 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 my thing was yeah right now in this moment they are better than everybody else because they have the best coach and the best players and the best everything but this is also the same school in the same athletic department that hired a guy who lied on his resume and they had to turn around and fire him real quickly this is the same. This is the same athletic department and same school that hired a guy named Mike Shula because his dad was really, you know, one of the greatest coaches of all time. This is this is a uh, school that employed Mike DeBoe and Dennis Francione, um, and a, a school that at the time Nick Saban took over was elated to go to Shreveport for the Independence Bowl. So, this you know, after Stallings left in the late 90s, it really felt like Bear brought it up, maintained it, died, and then the next two guys literally have like four-year stints each, and then they hire Stallings. Stallings takes them to another national championship because he was on Bear's staff and yada yada, brings the Bear magic back, and then they get displeased with him, and he doesn't win enough games, so they let him go and bring in DeBose, and then everything from that point on is a real low point in Bama football history. And my only comment was that the empire will once again, when Saban leaves, fall. Yep. Because whoever they get, even if they went and got Dabo, um, is not going to be able to replicate what Saban, what, what Saban is doing now, which is being so much better than everybody else on the planet at college football that you know, you're running up 28-point spreads. I mean, you are right, but they don't want to hear that. And it really shouldn't even matter. Again, you're probably going to win another one this year. Just shut up and take it. Uh, these are the same people who, after the kick six, wanted to fire Nick Saban and thought he was too old. I mean, look, they can do that. 
I, 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 I want them to do that. Please go ahead and do that. Uh, yes, because then he'd just walk over to Vanderbilt and make them national champions every year. No, 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 no. This is it. This is it. It's too late now. It's to the point of no return. There's no next job. He leaves this. He leaves forever. It's over. It's it's forever until he becomes a flag director somewhere. I mean, but does he want that though? I mean, that lake house in Georgia is very nice. <laughs> I mean, but he doesn't need the money, and I don't think he. I mean, he does part of that glad hand and stuff as a coach now, but I don't think that's what he actually enjoys. I mean, he, I don't think he enjoys much. But He's I not think no, Skip he, loves Skip will Skip will do anything for money, and Skip will gladly shake hands and kiss babies and tell stories. Yeah, and and Nick would do that if he if there was something in it for him. Yeah. Oh well, I'm I'm still watching this long ass pay per view, and well, we now know where Adam Cole is. Yeah, figured that was coming. I, I I thought uh well I figured he was going there, but I thought we would see Daniel Bryan by now. Or Brian Danielson, right name. I'm surprised that they didn't uh I'm surprised they didn't put the punt match last. Uh you know, it's the whole it's the old school thinking of the title match goes last. And it was a good match. It was probably better than the punk match, but uh I mean, for for heat's sake, the punk match was, uh, I don't know, everything was hot on this show. They were hot for everything, and everything was good. Indeed. So let's get started in five, four, three, two, one. 